Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Uh, the Lord spoke a portion of scripture to my heart the other morning as I was waking up. And ever since then, there's been some things that have been uh, rolling around on the inside of me. And so um, I'm going to do my best to get those, uh, those things out and uh, share with you what I believe the Lord would have for us to do, uh, what he'd have for us to minister. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus has uh, cursed the fig tree. And the next morning they come by and they see the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter... Uh, verse 21, Peter calling to remembrance said unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. Uh, there are other translations that relate this in different ways. One translation says, uh, uh, Have the faith of God, which would by necessity and by definition be the God kind of faith. If it's the faith of God, then it would be the God kind of faith. Uh, another translation says, um, uh, Reckon on God's faithfulness. I like that too. But anyway, it says, Have faith in God. In other words, Jesus is explaining that this miracle has taken place because of faith in operation. Then he describes it, explains how it works. Verse 23, for verily I say unto you, the word verily means truly. In other words, Jesus is saying it works this way and it always works this way. That whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Now I'll stop here long enough to say if he's talking about doubting in his heart or warning against doubt of the heart then he must be talking about believing of the heart or in the heart whosoever shall say unto this mountain be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and shall not doubt in his heart but shall believe in his heart that those things which he saith shall come to pass he shall have whatsoever he saith brother Hagin coined the phrase and i'm not sure he was the first one to do it but he was the first one i ever heard do it he coined the phrase you can have what you say well that's true under the conditions that jesus outlines Believe in your heart and not doubting in your heart. He said you can have whatsoever you say. Then he explains how faith works in prayer. Verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, because these things are true, because the principle of faith as described in verse 23 is true, therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire. Now I don't know but about how you see this, but whatsoever things you desire casts a pretty big net, doesn't it? I mean, there's no qualifier there. He said, what things soever you desire. What things soever you desire. Now, if you're sick, I'm sure one of the things you desire is a well body. What things soever you desire. Doesn't even say God's desire about you. Doesn't even say whatever's the will of God for you. Doesn't say anything like that. It said, what things soever you desire. Now, this is Jesus talking, and this is either an accurate account of what he said, or it's not. And since it's Jesus talking, he either told the truth or he didn't. There's no explaining it away. It says what it says. Therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe. Verse 23 was all about believing. He's talking about believing in the heart. Believing in the heart can be, uh, we could take a week and teach on it. But let me just define or explain what believing in the heart means. Believing in the heart means to believe independently of what your five physical senses tell you. Doubt of the heart means to believe what you see and hear and feel and taste and smell, I guess. Whatever the five physical senses are. If I left one of them out, forgive me. Doubting in the heart means to believe according to what you see or feel. Believing in the heart means to believe independently of what you see or feel. And that's why faith is based on the word of God. Romans ten seventeen says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Believing in the heart, therefore... 
faith, Bible faith, therefore, would be based on hearing the word of God and believing independently of what you see and feel. Now, that, that disqualifies a lot of people right there. Because a lot of people in the body of Christ would just refuse to believe anything that they can't see or feel or, or something that relates to their five physical senses. They are so natural-minded. They are so accustomed to letting their five physical senses and the information that we gain from those five physical senses determine what we believe and what we act on. That they just refuse to do anything independently of their five physical senses. Well, with one exception. They'll accept forgiveness of sins. What they understand is forgiveness of sins independently of what they feel and receive eternal life. But that's as far as their faith ever goes. So Jesus said, therefore, I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray. Now, here's the only thing that he says about time. When you pray, that's timing. When you pray, here's what you do when you pray. Believe in their heart, independently of your five physical senses, based on the word of God. Believe that you receive them, meaning the things that you desire, and you shall have them. You shall have them. Now, we've made this statement before, but it bears repetition. In my opinion, it bears repetition anytime we're talking about the subject of faith related to healing. And that is... About three-quarters of the people that were healed in Jesus' ministry that we have record of in the four, uh, the four Gospels, about three-quarters of them, just under three-quarters of them, were healed on the faith of the individual. It specifically identifies or implies through the action that recorded in the Scripture that there was faith present or faith acted on on the part of the individual in order to receive. Now, let me, let me draw one to your attention. Back up just a, a chapter or two to Mark chapter 9. We won't read through the whole thing, but here's the, the situation, uh, the healing event where the father brought his son that was possessed of the devil or oppressed of the devil at least, demonized, literally is what the term refers to. And he, Jesus wasn't there when he brought him to the disciples, and they tried to cast the devil out of him, and they couldn't. And so the man is desperate now, as you could well understand. I would be if I was in his shoes. So Jesus sees that there's a crowd around, verse 16, and he asked the scribes, what question you with them? And one of the multitude said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. I think they're all dumb, but I think this one means it keeps him from talking. He has a dumb spirit, and whithersoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Speaking of a lack of ability. Didn't say they wouldn't. Didn't say they weren't willing. He says they couldn't. And Jesus answered the disciples and said, you bunch of faithless people. Is that what it says? Jesus answered him, the father, and said, oh, faithless generation. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Jesus identifies first and foremost that the problem is a lack of belief on the part of the father. Not the disciples. You know why? Because Jesus has already commissioned the disciples and given them authority, power and authority over sickness and disease and to cast out devils. He knows what he gave them works. So he's smart enough and knows enough about how spiritual laws work and operate and the rules that govern spiritual laws. He knows that if this power that is sufficient to heal sickness and to cast out devils is not working, it's because there's no faith that being exercised on the part of the recipient to enable it to work 
Same thing that Mark chapter 6 verse 5 tells about Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth. It says, and he could there do no mighty work. Doesn't say that he wouldn't. It says he, Jesus, the son of God who can, and most everybody's idea, could do anything and everything whenever he wanted to at the drop of a hat. Snap of a finger, Jesus could do anything. That's how most people think he operated on the earth. That's not what the Bible says. That's how most of the church thinks. Yet Mark 6, 5 says, and he could in his own hometown of Nazareth, and he could there do no mighty work. It says Jesus was unable to have any healing miracles. Then it qualifies it or clarifies it. It says save or accept. He got a few folks with minor ailments healed. Laid his hands on a few folks. Didn't have too much wrong with them. A uh, few sick folks is what the King James says. Literally, it's the word sickly, and it means folks that didn't, didn't have too much wrong with them. That's the only thing Jesus was able to do in his own hometown in Nazareth. Why? And he marveled because of their unbelief. Their unbelief hindered the unlimited power of God from working. If their unbelief hindered them, why do we expect that our unbelief wouldn't hinder us? In fact, Jesus said that it would. So, Jesus answers and says... Faithless answers him, the father, O faithless generation. In other words, the father is part of this faithless generation that's walking according to what they see and feel. How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, brought the boy unto Jesus. And when Jesus, uh, he saw him, the boy saw Jesus, straightway the spirit tore him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. He had some kind of fit. And he asked his father, Jesus asked the father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And the father said, since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now he's questioning what Jesus is able to do. The father still doesn't get it. The father doesn't understand that the power is available to those that believe. So he's looking for somebody that's got the power. Which is the way most of the church looks for healing. They look for somebody that's got the power. If I can just find somebody that's got the power. Instead of working on the believing in. Which is the, the, the real. Uh, the main hindrance to the power of God. Working in the church anyway. Instead of working on the receiving in. They try to working on the transmitting in. If I can just find somebody with enough power. Well folks if you found somebody with the same measure of the Holy Spirit. And the same measure of healing power as Jesus. If you didn't believe it wouldn't work for you any more than it worked for these. That we have examples of. Are you out there? Can you see that? Now, I know a lot of people don't want to accept that. And I, I get that. And the reason that a lot of people, it seems to me at least, that the reason that many people don't want to accept that is because they don't want to accept any responsibility for their own healing. They want God to do some kind of miracle. They'll tell you stories about, well, I heard about so-and-so. And they prayed and God did this. And they didn't believe anything. And that's the way I want it. I've even had people say, well, I prayed before and God healed me and that. it didn't take any faith on my part. So I'm looking for him to do that again. Well, he did it once to show you is good. Now I expect something out of you because you know. So he asks Jesus or speaks to Jesus and says, but if you, Jesus, can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You know, it's an interesting thing. I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm taking longer on this than I plan to. But there's so often... That people attach this compassion idea to God doing something. And the idea seems to be, the implication seems to be, if only God cared, then he'd do something. It's right there, isn't it? If you can do anything, God, if you can help me. Now, I believe you can because you can do anything. All things are possible with God. 
But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. You do it for me and help me. Notice how Jesus, the Son of God, who is showing us God's attitude then and now toward sickness, toward believing God, toward receiving healing. Notice what Jesus says. He turns it right back onto the Father. He says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Jesus does not say, well, now you've kind of shamed me into this. I guess I'm going to have to really turn up the power gear here because you've called me, called me out on the compassion thing. No, Jesus puts it right back on him and says, it's just a question of you believing. The power is there if you are willing to believe. Now, remember, he's talking about believing in the heart, believing independently of your five physical senses. And I have compassion on the father as far as knowing where he's coming from. If you are in the same situation and you've seen this with your child year after year after year and, and put all your hopes in the disciples coming and or bringing uh, your son to Jesus and or the disciples and them casting the devil out of him and saw it not work. I can't imagine how discouraged the father would be. Yet even in the midst of that great discouragement, Jesus doesn't take the responsibility on himself. Even in the midst of that discouragement, maybe this is the lowest point that the father has ever hit with the son's condition. I can't imagine what would be lower than this. What would give you greater hope than bringing Jesus, bringing your son to Jesus and or his disciples for deliverance? And it didn't work. Now instead of Jesus doing something, instead of Jesus saying, oh, I've been looking for you, God showed me a vision. Now Jesus is arguing with the guy. He's telling him that he's, unbelie- that he's without faith. So at his lowest point, Jesus does not say, now, now, I understand. Dear sir, dear sir I know how bad you feel about this. I feel your pain. He still puts it right back over on him. He says, the issue is one and only one thing, and that is believing. If you can believe, your choice, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. Now, you know the end of the story. He says, uh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He doesn't give Jesus a whole lot to work with, but apparently that was enough. It was sufficient. But let me ask you this. What is he supposed to believe? What is he supposed to believe? It's not too prevalent in in our day, but in in previous days, decades prior to um, the most recent ones, you know, even even 25, 30 years ago, I guess. There was a lot made in the church about faith, but nobody ever told you what it was. There was a lot made about how important faith was because there are scriptures you just can't deny that talk about the importance of faith. Mark chapter 11 is a good example where Jesus talks about faith. And faith was referred to as this generic term that people left scratching their heads saying, now, what is that? What is it and how do you get it and how do you use it? There's so many people that have no real clue what faith is. They think faith is something different than what the Bible defines it as. I've got experience with this firsthand. There are so many people that come to healing school or come to church uh, and, and want to talk to me afterwards about their healing or whatever the case is. And they'll say, Pastor Mike, I want you to lay hands on me. I want you to agree with me. I want you to pray for me, whatever the case is, uh, for my healing. And I, my first question is always the same. What scriptures are you standing on? And whenever I hear this answer, I know exactly where people are from, coming from. Instead of giving me a scripture, nine times out of ten, they'll say, oh, now I believe. Or they'll say, now I have faith. 
And I know they have no clue what faith is or how to believe. Because instead of giving me a scripture which faith has to be based on. And if they were believing anything, it'd be so simple to say I'm standing on Matthew chapter 8 verse 16. I'm standing on Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. That answers my question. Let's pray. Because that tells me they know what faith is. They know what the basis of Bible faith is. They know how to believe. They know at least what the Bible defines uh, as far as how to believe. I can't attest to the fact that they're willing to hold on to it and stand strong in faith. But uh, time will certainly tell that. But whenever somebody says, oh, now I have faith. I know that that doesn't mean a thing. It's just this code word that we know we're supposed to say. Because Bible, the Jesus talked about and the Bible talks about faith. So I'll ask them. I'll say, well, what do you mean by that? And at that point, I might as well take a lounge chair. Because they want to tell me their story. And the story has nothing to do with receiving from God. I'm convinced. You know, Brother Hagin, uh, I heard him say this over and over again. And I didn't have enough experience in working with people that I really didn't um, understand it. And I used to think it was kind of hard about this. But Brother Hagin would say many times, he would tell us privately at least, he would say, you know, a lot of people don't want to be healed. They just want to talk. And I used to think with, with my spiritual level of spiritual immaturity at that point in time, I used to think, oh, that's kind of cold. That's kind of uncaring. But I've come to see he's exactly right. There's a lot of people that are dire, in dire need of healing. But they don't want to be healed. They just want to tell you their problem. But I'm off track now. Let's go back to this guy in Mark chapter 9. Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. What are they supposed to believe? What are the people on the earth supposed to believe when Jesus was here? What were they supposed to believe? Turn with me over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is the story where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Here's where a lot of people get uh, tripped up on the subject of faith and, and fail to gain an understanding of how things were in Jesus' day, when he, meaning when he was walking around on the earth, and how things work differently today. The faith that heals you when Jesus was here on the earth is not the faith that will heal you today. That's a shocker to some. Because so many people, I've heard so many people say, well, if only I could have been here when Jesus was here on the earth. Well, what would you what would you have needed to believe then to receive? Well, I don't know. Well, if you don't know what you would have needed to receive then, you wouldn't have received it. And in the same vein, if you don't know what you need to believe now, you won't receive either. So let's clear up that issue. What do you say? John chapter 11. Jesus is coming to... Uh, um, Lazarus tomb he goes first to the household before he goes out to the tomb he's been there uh, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days and so forth and Jesus says um, well let's just back up to verse 23 Jesus said unto her talking to Martha thy brother shall rise again and Martha gets spiritual on him she gets religious she says unto him I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day and Jesus said unto her, I am, the resurrection, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believeth thou this? She said unto him, please notice verse 27. Here's what Martha believes. Jesus asked her, do you believe? 
Martha is going to tell you what she believes. Martha says, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come into the world. What's she saying? She's saying, I believe you're the Messiah that's sent to the earth. Turn with, you, with me over to March, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus asked the question, beginning in verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, or some Elias, meaning Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said unto them, But whom say you that I am? It might be interesting to know what other people are saying, but it really comes down to what do you say for yourself? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's saying the same thing. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah sent to the earth, the Son of God. Can I ask you a question? Did either Martha's declaration of her faith or Peter's declaration of his faith cause them to be saved? Anybody want to venture a guess? How could they be saved when Jesus hadn't yet gone to the cross and paid the price for man's sins? Notice their declaration says not one thing about Jesus being the risen Savior because he's not risen. Notice one thing, not one thing is said about Jesus being raised from the dead. For example, do you remember over in Luke chapter 4 when it tells about Jesus going to his own hometown of Nazareth? Luke chapter 4 verse 18, it says Jesus took the, uh, it was delivered unto him the book of Isaiah the prophet and he began reading where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because I'm raised from the dead. Nope. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to heal the brokenhearted. To preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and so forth. Then he, he finishes reading and says, takes the book, closes it, and sits down and says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, Jesus preached in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, and Mark's account is Mark chapter 6. Jesus preached and said, I am the Messiah, the anointed one. Now, every city that he went where people would believe that, Capernaum, for example, Jesus couldn't do anything in Nazareth. And he says, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking the same things we heard about you doing in Capernaum, do those here. Well, what was the difference in Capernaum and Nazareth? Capernaum believed that he was a Messiah. Nazareth grew up with him. They wouldn't believe. They said, we know his family. How could he be the Messiah? We know his mother. We know his father. The Messiah is born of a virgin. He wasn't in their thinking. According to their understanding, how could he possibly be the Messiah? They refused to believe that he was the Messiah sent to the earth, and therefore the power of God didn't work for them. So what were people required to believe in order to receive their healing when Jesus was here on the earth? That he was the Messiah sent to the earth. There's a real interesting um, statement. It, it doesn't show up in the, in the King James. But let me, uh, let me turn over to, Mark, uh, to Matthew chapter 8. It's where the centurion sends for Jesus to, to heal his servant. Um, verse 5 Matthew chapter 8 verse 5 when Jesus was entered into Capernaum there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying Lord my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy grievously tormented and Jesus said unto him this is King James verse 7 Mark chapter 8 verse 7 Jesus said unto him I will come and heal him 
Literally in the Greek it says this. Having come I will heal him. Having come I will heal him. In other words Jesus is saying because I am the Messiah. The Christ sent to the earth I will heal him. In other words it's always God's will to heal. Because God sent the Messiah for healing purpose. For a healing purpose. It's not the only purpose he sent him for. But it was a big part of what he did. So Jesus said, having come, I will heal him. That's all anybody was required to believe. Now, this guy astonishes Jesus because he understands authority. He says, you don't have to come to my house. I'm a man under authority. I understand how it works. I have people under me and those that are under my authority. When I tell them to do something, they do it. I don't have to go check up behind them. They know, do it or else. I understand that you have authority over sickness the same way. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Jesus is floored. He says, wow, I hadn't found such great faith in all of Israel like this. That's big faith. What does that mean? That means he understands that Jesus is the Messiah that was spoken of in the law of Moses and the prophets. He understands Jesus is the Messiah. And because he's sent to the earth to do miracles and to do healing works, all you've got to do is speak the word. Don't take your time to come to my house. See, in Jesus' day, when he was here on the earth, all people were required to believe is that he was the Messiah, the Christ sent to the earth. Because the Old Testament is ripe, full of scriptures that talk about what the Messiah would do. So they understood, Jesus understood, that those who are knowledgeable in the law of Moses, that's why Jesus was sent to the Jews first, those that knew the law and the the prophets, they knew the scriptures that spoke of the Messiah. They knew the things that were said and, and, and told to them and taught to them from the times that they were young. They knew the things that the Messiah was declared to do or prophesied to do they knew who the messiah was declared to be all they have to do is identify him and they know what he's going to do that's why jesus was marveled in nazareth because the people wouldn't believe he even refers to the miracles he did in capernaum it's like he's saying i know what you're thinking do the same things here you want to see it first in other words you want your faith to be based on what you see and feel but that's not the way it works But you heard that I did them in Capernaum. Why not just believe that? Do you think they're lying to you? But he marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at their unwillingness to believe anything except what they saw and heard and felt. Five physical senses. Now turn with me over to Romans chapter 10. How are things different now? Very simply like this. Romans chapter 10, Paul is speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and he's telling how salvation works. We'll start in verse 8. He says in the previous verses, the righteousness or salvation which is of faith does not say if only Jesus would come down from heaven or if only we could go back and, and, and go to him or him come to us and so forth. But what does it say? Verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. So Bible faith, the faith that receives from God, the faith that is impossible to please God without. That kind of faith is of the heart. It's not according to what you see and feel. It's according to what God's word declares. Faith in its simplest definition is believing God's word is true. It just doesn't get any simpler than that. That's exactly what Hebrews 11.1 means when it says it's the evidence of things not seen. It means it believes God's word is true no matter what we see, no matter what we see, no matter how we feel about it, no matter what uh, evidence we have to the contrary. 
We believe God's word is true no matter what. That's faith. So that's what Paul is saying. And notice he says faith has to be in two parts. It has to be in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, it's not a matter of just believing that God's word is true. You've got to say something in order for faith to produce. And he explains how it works in verse 9. That if thou shalt confess, that means to use your mouth, that means to speak. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. In other words, that Jesus is Lord. What is that referring to? That's referring to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus became Lord because he paid the price for sin and death on the cross. That's what made him Lord. Jesus was not Lord because he healed the sick here on the earth. He became Lord because he paid the price for all of mankind. He's talking about the substitute. Well, what did he pay the price for? Isaiah 53 says he paid the price for sin and death. He paid the price for sickness. And he paid the price for poverty. So where it says Jesus is Lord, it means Jesus is Lord over sin and death. Jesus is Lord over sickness, and Jesus is Lord over poverty. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, or that Jesus is Lord, and, second part, two sides of the same coin, and shall believe in your heart, independent of what you see or feel, that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. So notice he says salvation depends on two things. It depends on believing that Jesus is Lord, in other words, that he paid the price on the cross, and secondly, Believing in the heart because no one, none of us saw it. None of us witnessed the resurrection. All we've got is first-hand testimony from the disciples who were there and did see it. They saw him killed. They saw him buried. They saw him raised from, again from the dead. So believing in your heart means believing just because the Bible says so that God raised him from the dead. Notice the believing that's required of you and me to receive from God is different from the believing that was required of those in Jesus' ministry. We don't have to believe that Jesus was the Messiah sent to the earth. That doesn't do us any good. That doesn't even get him to the cross. We have to believe that Jesus is Lord. That he paid the price for sin and death. That he paid the price for sickness. That he paid the price for poverty. And then secondly, we've got to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Under those conditions, those two terms, those two conditions, those two criteria, we receive salvation. Then it goes further and and describes it. Verse 10. For with the heart, the spirit, with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. In other words, believing in the heart brings you into righteousness. Believing independently of what you see or feel. I don't know about you, but I didn't feel righteous when I was made righteous. There's a lot of days I still don't feel righteous. Yes, the Bible says that I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Well, believing in the heart says I believe God's word is true. No matter how I feel. So what do you do when you, when you see the word say something but you feel differently? You declare what God's word says. And it changes your feelings sometimes. Sometimes it won't change your feelings but it's still true because God said it. That's what faith is. Faith is believing God's word to be true. God knew what, what you were going to feel like. He knew you were going to still feel unrighteous long before he declared and made you righteous. So it's true. Pure and simple. Now the devil will try to work on your feelings. Well, you know you're not righteous. You know where you've messed up and look at how you feel. It has nothing to do with the truth of what God said. I wake up some mornings and don't feel married. But I am every day. Right? There's a lot of things we don't feel that are true. 
Faith says God's word is true because God said it. So he says in verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. Righteousness means the benefits of everything Jesus provided through his death at burial and resurrection. In other words, the righteousness that's being referred to here is the package, is part of the package of salvation. Literally is the package of salvation. It means Jesus died to make us free from sin and death. He died to make us free from sickness. And he died to make us free from poverty. That's what the righteousness refers to here because it is the salvation package. Jesus didn't pay one price for sin and death. He didn't pay a second price for sickness and a third price for for, um, uh, poverty. He shed blood for all of them. It was his blood shed on the cross that paid the price for all of those because all of those are a result of the law of sin and death in the earth. So with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So again, he's talking about two pieces, believing in your heart independently of what you see or feel, and speaking what God's word says with your mouth. So what does that mean? That means very simply this. We would never have somebody come up and lead them into a salvation prayer by saying something like this. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He died for spiritual death. Therefore, I'm going to be saved. We'd never lead them into that prayer, would we? Because that would indicate that something is going to happen at some future time whether it's a short term or long term, that will bring salvation. Instead, we say, we believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, therefore I receive salvation in his name. That's confessing the Lord Jesus. That's confessing Jesus as Lord over sin. And the result is, we confess with our mouth that we receive salvation now. Why then would we have somebody say, I believe Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, and I'm going to be healed. What's the going to be healed mean? Does that mean sometime when we see a difference in our bodies, then we'll accept it? That's, believe, that's doubting in the heart. Believing according to your five physical senses rather than believing from your heart. No, in the same way, we say, I believe that Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. That's what the Bible says in Isaiah 53, 4. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, so I receive my healing. Jesus already paid the price. What about poverty? We say, I believe that the chastisement of my peace, poverty, was upon Jesus. Punishment for poverty was laid upon Jesus on the cross. Therefore, I receive prosperity. Works the same way in every area. Because God doesn't have one system for for forgiveness of sins or what the church world calls salvation and a different system for healing and a different system for for, uh, prosperity. It's all the price that Jesus paid on the cross. And the price that he paid made him Lord of all. He was your substitute. He became Lord over sin, sickness, death, and poverty by the price that he paid, the death that he died. The fact that God raised him from the dead means he's ever seated at the right hand of God is the proof, the eternal proof that you've been redeemed. Can you see that? Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Here's how that translates into real life. 
Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse, uh, well, let's just start in verse 10. We'll read down through verse 17. Paul is closing his letter to the Ephesians, uh, the church at Ephesus, and he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Notice he doesn't say a word about you being strong in yourself. Notice he doesn't say a word about being a strong Christian. He says, be strong in the Lord. In other words, learn to rely on him and his strength, not on you and yours. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the deceit, the trickery, literally the traveling over of the devil. The traveling over is a little blind to us. It simply means this. It's a word picture and it means the road that the devil travels. There is only one road that the devil travels, and that's a road of bringing thoughts and doubts to your mind. That's all he can do. He cannot change the truth of what Jesus did. The only thing that he can do is try to talk you out of believing the truth through trying to get you to rely on your five physical senses or circumstances or whatever. So it says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. In other words, the one road that the devil tries to work against you. And that one road is your mind. See, a strong Christian is the one somebody that has renewed their mind to the word. Being strong in the Lord and the power of his might means you have come to the knowledge of what Jesus did and you've accepted it by renewing your mind to the truth no matter how you feel or no matter whatever, whatever anybody else says. You reverse the normal course of the world's way of thinking through repetition, repeating the word of God to yourself again and again and again. That's what the Bible says meditating is. Meditating in the word is. It's saying the word of God to yourself over and over and over again. And the impact of that is that it will renew your mind and you will become conscious of the truth of the word that you're meditating on. So put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. By the way, if you don't have on the armor of God, if you're not renewing your mind, that's why so many Christians aren't able to stand when trouble comes. Sorry, it's just the way it works. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. Wherefore, because of this, take unto you the whole armor of God. Notice your battle is in the unseen realm, not the seen realm. That's why faith is the evidence of things not seen. That's why faith says God's word's true no matter what we see, no matter what we feel, no matter what our five physical senses tell us. Wherefore, because of this, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore. I like William's translation that says that you may be able to stand when, uh, when, uh, uh, oh, what is it? when evil attacks you. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. In other words, when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand. So it tells us standing is two parts. It's preparation and the action of standing itself. Be ready for the devil when he comes. Don't try to play catch up after he's already on the scene. Now, yeah, but Pastor Mike, he was already on the scene before I found out any of this stuff. Okay, that's fine. God will still help you see you through. But next time, be ready for him when he comes. Stand, therefore, verse 14, having your loins girt about with truth. Here's what you need to know. You need to know the truth of God that will hold you steady. And having on the breastplate of righteousness, you need to know that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. No, no matter how you feel. 
Third, verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, you need to walk in peace no matter what's going on around you. Somebody asked me this morning, oh, Pastor Mike, hadn't seen him in a while. Pastor Mike, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing great. I don't have a care. My world's going crazy around me, but I don't have a care. We've got to learn to walk in peace in the midst of turmoil. Because living in the last days, you're living in perilous times. You better learn to operate in peace now before it gets worse. Thank you very much for your enthusiasm. And having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Notice that's a preparation thing. It's a renewing the mind thing. Verse 16, above all, doesn't mean this is more important than anything else, but it literally means overall, out in front, to cover everything else. Over, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench a few fiery darts of the wicked. All the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, how does that apply? Uh, well, let me finish verse 17, and I'll go back. And take the helmet of salvation, renewed mind, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. There's only one offensive weapon there, and that's the Word of God. How do you use the Word of God? By speaking it. And it's a two-edged sword against the devil's attacks. But notice it's not the Word of God, or the, the confession of the Word of God in and of itself, in this application, that stops the devil. It's the shield of faith that stops the devil's attacks. Now, how does that apply? It applies very simply like this. It's saying that faith, which is based on the word of God, the faith that receives from God under the new covenant, now that Jesus is raised from the dead, simply says, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, therefore, and God raised him from the dead. In other words, he's the risen savior from sin and death, so I receive my salvation. I believe that Jesus is the risen savior from sickness, therefore, I receive my healing. I believe that Jesus is the risen Savior from poverty. Therefore, I receive my prosperity. The Bible says that that becomes a shield that keeps you steady and holds you, uh, holds you stable, keeps you stable, and gets you through the worst circumstance that the devil could possibly bring against you. Now, I know what you're thinking. Immediately, the devil will bring a thought to your mind, it can't be that easy. Or something like, You've tried that and didn't make it work. Well, I'm not sure what your experience has been, but the Bible says, God said, the God that can't lie, said that the shield of faith will quench or extinguish every fiery dart of the wicked. It does not say that fire won't get close to you. It does not say that the arrow, the flaming arrow won't stick in your shield and burn for a while. But it says that it will quench or extinguish every fiery dart of the wicked. That's what I woke up with the other morning. I woke up and first thing, just as my eyes opened up, the sun was just coming up. We slept with the, the blinds up. So I woke up early in the morning just as the sun was coming up. And in my heart, in my spirit, I heard these words. Taking the shield of faith, which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Now, folks, I could quote that scripture. I've taught on that scripture hundreds of times. But boy, when your spirit gets it. It's a brand new thing. I, can, I took that as the Lord talking to me. Doesn't matter what it looks like. Doesn't matter what it feels like. Doesn't matter if things seem to be getting worse and worse. The thing you're confessing, the thing you're believing for, the healing you're believing for seems to be getting further and further away. Doesn't matter because the shield of faith quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked. Above all, taking the shield of faith 
which is able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Folks, confessing that Jesus is Lord over your body, the risen Lord, the risen Savior from sickness and receiving your healing is all that needs to be done. Look at the guy in Mark chapter 9. Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. The man simply said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That was enough for Jesus to work with. You've got so much more than him. You've got so much greater knowledge of the word than him. You've got so much greater understanding how faith works than he did. You have got so much greater a foundation to receive than that guy ever did. And look at what a miracle he got. His son was delivered. You think it's not going to work for you? Of course it's going to work for you if you don't turn loose. If you hold fast the profession of your faith. The word profession is the same word translated confession the rest of the, in the rest of the New Testament. If you hold fast the confession of your faith, why? Because he's faithful that promised. In other words, the shield of faith will see you through till the answer and the victory is there. There will come a point where your five physical senses will agree God's word is true. I'm glad you're excited about that. Did you hear me? Let me say it again. If you maintain your confession that Jesus is the risen Lord over your sickness, or not your sickness, but sickness that has attacked your body, therefore you receive your healing because Jesus paid the price for it. You maintain that confession. The Bible says that shield of faith, that faith will work like a shield to protect you. It doesn't say most of the time the devil can't get through that. Or some of the time... But there are exceptions, you know, so just be prepared for anything. No. It says the shield of faith will quench every fiery dart of the wicked. That's what all means, isn't it? Doesn't all mean every? That means whatever's coming against you, the shield of faith will quench that fiery dart. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, it's been so long. Don't let your eyes get over on your, your experience. Don't let your eyes begin to doubt the things that you see or the things that you feel. The experience that you've had, don't let that cause you to doubt in your heart. That's the faith destroyer. God's word is true because God said so. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will never fail. That means it's impossible for his word not to come to pass on your behalf. You do your part, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. It's impossible for it not to work. Impossible. Impossible. Well, when do we believe? When you pray. When did you believe when you got saved? When you prayed. You believe Jesus was risen, the risen Savior from sin, and so you received your salvation. You believe Jesus is the risen Savior from sickness, and you receive your healing in the same way. I don't know about you, but most people that I've seen, especially older people, people that are adults, it takes a while for salvation to show up in their life. A lot of people I see get saved. They don't quit doing wrong things that they were doing before they got saved immediately. I've seen people get saved and, and still had to, to learn to put away cigarettes and bad habits and different things like that. Well, why? Does that mean they didn't get saved until they, we see it show up in their life? No. It means it takes a while for some things to work through. But they were saved when they believed. It works the same way with healing. There's a lot of healed people that still look like they're sick. Did you get that? There's a lot of healed people that still look like they're sick. 
Because sometimes it takes a while for sickness to run its course. Sometimes it takes a while for believing. Believing in the heart, which is a spiritual force. That belief in the heart to drive out sickness and disease. But it's at work whether you can see it or not. I wonder how many people have given up just before the answer showed up. There's no telling. Absolutely no telling. They'll start off. They'll believe something like they're hearing tonight. And they'll say, yes, praise God, I believe I received my healing. And they'll hang on to it for a week and give up. Maybe they'll hang on to it for a couple of weeks and give up. I wonder how many people give up right before the answer shows up. It's been real all, all along. But there comes a point in time, a physical moment in time where your body changes. Hang on till then. How long is that going to be, Pastor Mike? I don't know. Maybe a different time for you than it is for me. Maybe shorter for you than it is for me. I don't know. Doesn't have anything to do with how good you are. Doesn't even have anything to do with how spiritually mature you are. Some of those things we just can't control and can't, don't have the answer for ahead of time. But for me, I'm going to hang on to it till it comes. Because the shield of faith will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Amen? Amen. Well, let's all stand.